Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Today I'm going to be joined by Dr. Jeremy Whitlock. He recently wrote a paper called Geological Repositories for Used Nuclear Fuel Stewardship or Abandonment, um, which I read in the previous episode. So if you haven't, um, if you're not familiar with that, that paper, feel free to listen to the previously posted episode to hear that. Dr. Whitlock has over 27 years experience as a scientist and manager in the Canadian and international nuclear community. Since January 2017, he has worked in the Department of Safeguards at the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, helping to ensure that countries meet their obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Prior to that, he worked at Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, AECL in Mississauga and Chalk River in reactor physics, and from 2006 to 2016, as manager of non-proliferation and safeguards. Since 2015, Chalk River has been operated by Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. Dr. Whitlock received a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the University of Waterloo and a Master's in Engineering and PhD in Nuclear Engineering from McMaster University. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. It's great to see you and hear you in person. Yeah, you too. You're a real person. You're not just a, a, a name on a group. I know. It's, it's amazing <laughs> to consider that. There's still a lot of people who don't believe that, that I'm a real person. And that's okay. That's... You're a real person. And if you wouldn't mind just taking a couple of moments to introduce yourself for our listeners. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Jeremy Whitlock. I am a nuclear scientist uh, who has been involved in nuclear basically my whole life because my dad worked at Chalk River Laboratory. So I'm a second generation nuclear guy. I worked for a couple of decades at Chalk River Laboratories near Ottawa as a what we call a reactor physicist, somebody who's involved in the analysis of, of how reactors work, designing new reactors or monitoring existing reactors. Um, and I've also been involved in, in um, public information on nuclear technology all of this time as well, just as a, as a personal interest item, which led me at an early stage of the internet to develop a website in, in 1996, which is still around and still looks like it was written in 1996. <laughs> but, uh, God help me, I, I, I have trouble updating uh, the, the, the technology and I just think, how can you improve on having the facts listed, listed there? But I've yeah. received positive feedback to that effect as well. Um, so I was 20 years at Chalk River. I, I currently live in Austria and work at the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is an agency of the United Nations in, in Vienna. And the main job of the IAA um, Department of Safeguards, where I work as a, as a manager, is to administer um, nuclear safeguards, which is verifying that, that uh, countries are, are keeping to their obligations not to, to start a nuclear weapons program with nuclear technology because nuclear technology nuclear reactors um, always has this yin and yang it, it was born of of military uh, uses and it had it always had non-military uses and so these two things are, have always existed since the beginning of, of the industry and so uh, very close to the beginning of the industry 
um, they started Im imposing safeguards, which are ways of ensuring that if you if you are a country that doesn't have nuclear weapons, um, you can still benefit from the, the the technology itself for medicine, agriculture, um, food irradiation, uh, and and electricity and uh, other things, um, but but not use the technology to to start a nuclear weapons program, and that's what the the IAEA does. Primarily, the Department of Safeguards, but uh, and then there's huge other parts of the IAEA that are helping the countries get those beneficial technologies in the first place. So it's a way of spreading the the spreading the, the good of nuclear and keeping the bad of nuclear at bay around the world. And, and so you can't you can't it. complain about that. It's uh, any reduction of nuclear weapons is a good thing. Those uh, exactly those are definitely the nasty side of nuclear. Right. So I work with about 3,000 people here, roughly, who, who all support the, the, the beneficial side of nuclear technology and don't like the, the uh, atomic bomb side of nuclear technology. And it, it's really fulfilling to be in a place where you're actually doing something about that. So we are going into almost every country on the planet, um, going to their facilities and looking at the uranium and the plutonium and making sure that it's where it's supposed to be and in the amounts that it's supposed to be in whether it's in a reactor or it's fuel waiting to go into a reactor or even just um, shielding around a cancer therapy machine, which is made out of, which they build out of uranium because it makes also a good radiation shield. But that's a material that we, we actually track as well. Cool. So it's, it's quite fulfilling. There must be a lot of travel involved there. I'm kind of jealous because it's I don't get awful travel. lot of travel. I don't get not, to travel in my, not job. for me. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know, um, so I don't, those are the inspectors and they are doing a lot of they are on the road most of the time um and you can imagine by the way trying to do that in the era of covid because oh a lot of a lot of things sort of stopped when covid happened but safeguards never stopped nuclear safeguards so we never stopped going to these uh it's what 183 countries but imagine trying to do that when there's no commercial flights uh, it's just amazing Man. and yeah so it would we, be a nightmare we, we, it was impossible for the first couple of months. Everybody hunkered down. We still did what we could, but then we, you had to. We had to go back to these countries. So chartered flights, driving over borders, trying to, and then quarantining. Um, so doing sort of a, a week of inspections with a, a two-week or three-week quarantine before wow. it, and a two or three-week quarantine afterwards. Now my job, I'm, I have an office job. I, I I manage a team of about 18 people here who develop the procedures that those inspectors use. So so I don't have to do all that traveling, thankfully. My major piece of traveling was to travel from Canada to get to Vienna yeah, <laughs> in the first I bet. place. That'd be a big and, change. And here I stay. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be fun to do that job for a little while to travel around, maybe a couple of months, oh, yeah. see enough places, and then I think I'd be over it. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it does sound exotic. You, you hear the way well, you, you talk to these ins inspectors in the elevator and, and uh, you know, they're, they're pulling the, the roller bag behind them. Where are you off to? It's, oh, well, I'm off to uh, um, Abu Dhabi or I'm off to Jordan. I'm, I'm off to these places that sound like great exotic um, yeah. vac vacations, but they they are not on an exotic vacation. It's yeah. just like they they go there and it's bang 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 and then they're and then they're back. Yeah. And it, there was nothing fun about it for the last two years. It, it'd sure. be a really good way though to kind of feel the countries out to see if you wanted to go there on vacation. Yeah, you you do get a sense for the different countries. That's for sure. Yes. But yes. Way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> but we I tend to go. I tend to go down rabbit holes. 
Um, well, this is fun. It's all interesting stuff. It is. Um, I always like learning a little more about the IAEA, so I won't complain about it. So the whole reason you're here, you wrote this paper, the deep mm -hmm. geological repositories for use nuclear fuel, stewardship or abandonment. And you've been following the DGR conversation for quite a while. So, you know, this abandonment, stewardship, what is what is stewardship? What should we be doing? You know, these, these conversations come up all the time. So I guess my first my first question is what prompted you or drove you to write this paper? Well, it it really starts with a realization a little while ago that that we ought to we being the industry or people who just who support nuclear in general should stop being embarrassed about nuclear waste. We, we, I know that it's it's so ingrained in the industry to kind of kind of like. Uh, uh, you know, cast your eyes down and say, you know, we're not worthy. We have this waste. Um, we're, we're sorry, and we hope we can do something <laughs> about it. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, the, the the realization is is that it's it's probably the only waste form that that we do do as much about it that that we do, which is which is having a plan that goes forward a million years. There's nothing else that we create that I can. Th I keep asking people, is there anything else that we do this for? If you think about all of the most high-tech waste management um, processes we have, it's always looking forward hundreds of years, you know, and, and yeah. on, on that time scale. Nothing is looking past the next glaciation. Whereas um, with nuclear fuel, we do look past not just the next glaciation, but the one after that and the one, af the one after that. And, and then people could say, well, that's good because it's toxic material and it lasts that long. Well, yeah look around the world is full of toxic material that lasts that long and yeah. so the realization was was my goodness we ought to not be embarrassed of this we should be saying um no look there are certain characteristics of of this waste that actually make it possible to do something about it for a million years and it's and a lot of it is unique to nuclear so for starters when you create when you generate energy from the fuel all of the waste products are still there in the object that you generated the energy from in the first place it doesn't mm -hmm. go anywhere you're not burning anything you're not dissolving anything so there's no smoke there's no liquid that flows out it's it's a hunk of ceramic material that gets hot for about a year and then it cools down and all of the high level waste products are are, are there and so it's um, and then also you throw in the fact that nuclear is, uh, you know, millions of times more energy dense than other fuels, which means that translates to this waste product being rel in millions of times uh, smaller. So you have a small, a relatively small amount of material. It's all at the location where you used it in, in the first place. It's very easily to characterize. It's the only waste product where you can stand, um, you know, 10 meters away and hold up a, a detector and it tells you that it's there without having yep. to actually sample the waste product in the first place and do a chemical analysis. And, and down to a very, very, very precise level too. You can actually tell when a single atom is turning into another atom, radioactively decaying. Mm -hmm. to, to, that, to, the, to, to the level of, an, of a single atom, you can detect this material so it's actually, it's all in one place and it's, it's extremely manageable because it's solid and it's in ceramic form if you're talking about spent nuclear fuel and it's easily characterized. And all of these things make it actually relatively easy to, do, to ask the question, well, what can we do about this to make sure that it's isolated from the biosphere for as long as it remains a, a, a hazard? 
Um, and because it's solid and it's small, then you then storing it becomes mm -hmm. a possibility. But and so that's what we do now. We store at all the nuclear sites, and it's because it's relatively small. It doesn't take up a lot of space. If you look at a a satellite photo of any nuclear station, one of the smallest parts would be where the nuclear fuel is stored. Yeah, and it's all there from decades and decades of operation. Uh, and in in, in in comparison, this this would be you know. Um, greater Toronto area sized uh, tracts of land filled with with uh, coal if that was the coal that went into it and then three times that in the waste and where is that waste from coal it's it's gone it went up into the atmosphere so in comparison you have a in, in comparison you have something which is the size of a of a, you know, a hockey rink sort of thing filled at, at most filled with this very easily managed fuel and so that was the sort of the realization a little while ago that I had that we, sh we should actually sort of stop being on the back foot and kind of like lean into the advantages of nuclear um, spent fuel and, and, and actually putting it forth as, an, as one of the benefits of, of nuclear, because yeah. we ought to be thinking about the back end of all of our processes. And we're able to do that very efficiently with nuclear. I often wonder too, if, you know, th there is lack of understanding is maybe the wrong term to use, but people don't, have a real comparison to say fossil fuel waste because like you said we don't know well we know where it's gone it's gone into the atmosphere it's hard to put a perspective on that because you don't really see it it's not like it's sitting there and we can go oh there's the spent oil or whatever like you can't it's not all contained in one area so you can't see how much space it takes up or it's hard to compare the two I think exactly. and because it's not sitting in an area like the things from natural gas and coal, the exhaust isn't sitting there in the building that you can look at. It's hard to compare them. And the other thing that drives me bonkers is when people talk about the tonnage of spent fuel because it sounds ridiculous because it's a big number. Mm -hmm. But uranium is also crazy heavy. So like it sounds like a really big thing, but that's because uranium's heavy. It's not right. It's a necessarily small, a small because amount. it takes up a horrendous amount of space. It's it's yes. one of those things people do, right? Oh, this number sounds horrendous, so let's use this one because we want to scare people. So let's use the tonnage, not the right, anyway. right, right. Versus yeah, so, if you no, knew the tonnage right. of exhaust that came out of a gas plant or a coal plant, you'd probably fall over. And you know, like I think that, if people look at the waste people. of the. the the waste that they, people generate in their own home, they, I think they put much more thought into the kitchen garbage uh, yeah. that they package up compared to the waste that comes out the, the exhaust pipe of, of their car. So of, of course, if you ask them, they, they are aware that there's exhaust coming out of their car and that it's, 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 got, uh, it, it's a waste product and it's affecting the atmosphere, it's, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of what do you think about on a daily basis and what, what really concerns you? It's, it's, well, there's that kitchen garbage and I'm filling it yeah. up and again, it's a certain amount. And then after a certain number of days, I have to take it and put it over there in that other container and everything's sort of measured. And when you yeah. measure things and put a number on it, um, especially when you're only allowed a certain number of garbage bags uh, yeah. a, a week in some places, then it becomes a, a concern. Uh, the car that you're going to hop in and, and, and drive, um, you know, three kilometers down to the store instead of walking, you don't even think about that. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't cross your mind, most, most people. And this is the yeah. issue with, with nuclear. If you can put a number on something, then it's a danger. And so we can, we can uniquely 
uh, say, there's the waste. It's over there in that building. It's so many tons, <laughs> so many thousands of tons, um, and it's giving off this radiation and we need to, to deal with it. And if that's your only um, point of reference, of, of course, you're going to find that alarming because you haven't really thought about that before, about mm. where your electricity comes from and how much waste is created. Um, and so there's there's that aspect that you haven't when you when you put a number on something it makes it seem dangerous then as you point out you can have the numbers can be very large especially with radiation because mm. because we can measure single atoms decaying so we can actually say there are you know 10 billion 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 atoms per second de decaying in that piece of material and it's like my god that's a large number that must be dangerous yeah. But we, we seldom get to the point of, of fully communicating what is the danger of that amount of radiation. And the fact that you do have uh, every second in an average human body, there's 10,000 atoms radioactively decaying roughly into other atoms. So this is happening. Mm -hmm. And this is just a natural process. Every second, 10,000. Um, and it's not hurting us. In, in fact, it's probably is probably helping us. It's probably stimulating yeah. our immune system. There's all sorts of research about how that level of radiation exposure from carbon-14, potassium-40 that's in our body um, is actually potentially beneficial. In any case, it's not hurting us. Um, so, so there's that. And then what also happens is um, all of these things leave the door open for people who don't like nuclear to then use the big numbers or use words like abandonment to, to, to define um, what a deep geological repository is. And that brings me to stewardship versus abandonment. I had this realization to start with that we should be more positive about nuclear. And then in, in recent years, there's been this um, description of the geologic repository as a dump and its abandonment. Uh, the imagery is that you're digging a hole, throwing waste in, sort of what you might do with kitchen garbage if you weren't ethical and you, and, and mm. you ran out of space in your, in your one week allotment of garbage bags. So I'm going to dig a hole in my backyard. I'm going to throw the kitchen garbage in and, and cover it up and, and forget about it. And that's the imagery that people sometimes have about a, a repository, especially if you're hearing about it for the first time. Yeah, especially if you're hearing about it for the first time from somebody who doesn't think it should be built in the first place and they are describing yes. it this way. Yeah. using the word abandonment. And that's why I wrote this article, because I, I thought, well, no, let's ask the question, well, what does abandonment mean? And what does stewardship mean? And through this article, I hope I convince the reader that, to at least have a second, a second look at these definitions, these terms, yeah. and, and, and maybe come, come to the same conclusion I did, that um, when you responsibly deal with fuel, uh, spent nuclear fuel that can be stored in a way that it will not interact with the biosphere for the length of time that it's that it's um, a hazard, then that is a form of stewardship. Not the kind of stewardship where you have it in a building and you pay somebody to watch it for a length of time, because that's impossible for this length of time. But in fact, you're basically um, putting it in a place where nature looks after it for the length of time that it's a hazard, and that's geological stewardship. And then there's a whole wealth of science that you need to make sure that that's actually possible. And that's what's happened over the last 50 years, bringing us to, to where we are today. So it's geological stewardship versus um, the idea of abandonment. And uh, abandonment to me is not doing something about the material for, for, the, for the length that it is going to be toxic, which is sort of what we're doing with everything else on, on the planet. Yeah, true enough. Um, the the I'll say the quote that really stuck out to me, which ironically is what you have bolded, I think twice in the paper, 
is that rolling stewardship, in fact, represents abandonment of our long-term obligation for managing used nuclear fuel, while geological repositories represent long-term stewardship. And I, I could be wrong in this um, interpretation of that, but rolling stewardship is so heavily dependent on society and people and humans and constant intervention. And it is much easier for those things to fall off the wagon, so to speak. And the fuel does literally end up abandoned on the surface with no one taking care of it anymore. Versus if we plan for geological storage in a solid rock formation that we know has been stable for billions of years, that is the responsible stewardship. You know, like that is the, that is the thing to do so that if people aren't willing to monitor it anymore, or we aren't able to monitor it, or people don't exist, (laughs) you know, that the rock will do its job in maintaining the safety. As, as the rock has done for a billion years or more with existing, with, with, with the radioactive material highly concentrated in the earth. Like in Saskatchewan, there's, you know, a mother load of uranium there, highly concentrated, uh, so concentrated that they have to mine it with robotic machinery because of the natural radiation levels. That's, and that's unusual for, for um, uranium mines. Um, and, and they almost missed finding that uranium because they were looking for radioactive signatures at the surface, the way that you normally look for, for uranium, where you, you drill boreholes and you, and you pull up yeah. the material and look for radiation. So there's no radiation at the surface. They're, pulling, they're drilling boreholes, and, and, and they almost completely missed it. So they had to actually um, go to great lengths to find this material in a situation, so it's highly concentrated uranium ore, in a situation that, that in many ways is conceptually similar to the deep geologic repository, because uh, it was sitting in, um, in, actually in its case, in, in Saskatchewan, in the Athabascan Basin, it's actually sitting in a huge amount of groundwater flow in sandstone. And this is what you would not do with a geologic repository. You would pick a much better rock matrix to put to dig your hole in and you would make sure there was hardly any groundwater movement and what groundwater there was was taking a million years to to percolate through the rock um which is the length of time that the that the talk the toxicity lasts so this so why was this uranium ore sitting underground in underneath saskatchewan in in constant flowing water for a billion years and and sandstone is just a sponge it's the nature's sponge it's filled and it's undetectable and there's nothing, there's nothing coming, it's not dissolving the uranium ore. Why? Well, it just so happens that where this uranium was deposited between this, it's sitting in sandstone, but it's sitting on a sort of the, the basement um, uh, granite rock is, is, is below that. And where it's sitting, it's got this clay overburden over top of it that's just naturally put there. And that clay had protected it from direct contact with the water, just sort of a random occurrence in in nature. Now we can choose a much better rock than sandstone. We can even choose a better clay, a bentonite clay versus the clay that was that uh, was in this case. But essentially, it's it's the same concept. So we can we can sort of improve on these ideas because because nature acts randomly, and you know humans put a little more science behind it. But nevertheless, we have this example of nature, which which uh, shows us that we are on the right track. This is this is the way that you can keep concentrated radioactive material isolated for a billion years. You don't do it by building a box on the surface 
and storing it there and then telling the next generation and the next generation about it. Because eventually, if nothing else, a glacier will come and wipe that whole thing out and dump it in the northern United States, along with all the cars and the buildings and the washing machines mm-hmm. um, in, 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 the, in, in the area. So the, the reason I wrote the paper, I guess, is, is a bit tongue in cheek, the part that you referred to that, that's in bold, because my intention was to turn the tables. I, I admit that, because that's a form of effective communication. It was very strongly put in the in the literature that I was reading that, in fact, um, deep geologic repositories are abandonment and rolling stewardship is stewardship. Well, so to turn it around and say, in fact, it's the other way around and rolling stewardship, by the way, another word for that is status quo. That's what we have been doing for, for decades. We have it in a building, we, we watch it. If you're going to extrapolate that ahead uh, thousands of years, then of course you do have to make sure you have a very good communication <laughs> mechanism to, to succeeding generations. And nothing that I have seen in the literature about rolling stewardship even addresses what you do about, about uh, ice ages, about glaciation. It's always been interesting to me when, when the topic of rolling stewardship comes up, you know, that we need to make sure the next generation knows about it. And, what, and I'm like, we can do that with the repository. Like, only the actual storage mechanism is so much safer. So like, why would you opt for a less safe option for the very long term? Don't get me wrong, above ground storage is safe for right now. Like, why would we opt for a less safe option for the long term under the guise of we can just tell the next generation about it? We can do that with underground storage. You know, and if we want the monitoring to go on for however long, we just tell the next group of people to monitor it still. And it's like, it's kind of a strange dynamic, I guess, when we talk about it, because it's like the the things you're saying we need to apply to make it safe, we can apply to a repository. It's like right, they just right. don't, they don't want to make that connection. And And you make a good point that's worth repeating that we aren't here talking about safe storage of nuclear fuel because we do that today and we have been doing it for decades and we can continue to do that for hundreds of years if we have to we can do we can do that for a thousand years or you know as long as we have planned um, safe storage of other toxic materials so we, we are basically doing that today what we're talking about here is what do you do about the the glacier that comes if you want to you know talk about one particular boogeyman it's the glacier that's going to come we know there will be a glacier coming over ontario it'll wipe out everything on the surface uh toronto everything and and dump it in the northern united states like it did several times before um this is going to happen again maybe climate change will slow it down but it's going to happen again and it's going to happen several times in the lifetime of this of this material and in the lifetime of several other forms of toxic material that that are created by our industries but we're talking about what we can do with, with the nuclear fuel. So it's this long-term s- scenario, and I really don't see that being addressed by rolling stewardship. And so if you're not addressing it, then I, in, in my books, you are abandoning your obligations to address this. You res- it's our responsibility to address this long-term future of the waste that, that we create, of all the waste that we create. And so we, we can't practically do that about a lot of the waste because we can't get our arms around it. <laughs> but we can mm-hmm. figuratively speaking with the, with the, with the spent nuclear fuel. So I'd really like to see it. how they plan to stop glaciers for above ground storage. I'd really, I'd really love to be involved in that conversation when they, when it tries to be explained on how they're going to stop the glacier 
from from taking up the yeah or i i guess you put it all on trucks and, and drive south to where the glaciers aren't going to come or there's there's some there's some huge transfer of the you know billions of tons of nuclear which would be a huge transportation point. risk because isn't transportation super dangerous if like it's you know exactly. if you're talking to people who are i don't think transportation super dangerous but if you're talking to people who are against DGR, usually transportation is one of the things. So it, it's just interesting to me, the the mental gymnastics <laughs> that will go on right. to make a DGR bad, but rolling stewardship okay. And I guess the only other thing that I really wanted to cover is this talking point that comes up sometimes about how a DGR is old technology, or, you know, we've been looking at it for decades. They can't come up with anything better. What is your response to that <laughs> sort of conversation? Well, um, it is true that it, it is decades old, and it's true that we can't come up with anything better. It's, it's actually, but we haven't built one yet, and so it's state of the art. <laughs> now, the reason we haven't built one yet is because there really has been not a great hurry to build one. The, as we've been mentioning, the, the nuclear material is stored safely where it is now, and this has this always been a long-term solution. Um, so there's been a huge amount of science that has gone into it. It's, it's always been something that would take decades to produce. And we're now in the process of finally getting to the stage where, where it can be produced. If there was something better, the scientists would be the first ones to sign up to it. What is that? Putting it on a rocket and, and sending it to the sun? You know, make the case. Um, yeah. it, it, so some people say it's leaving it where it is and watching it for, for forever. I don't think they make, they make the case, especially the forever part. For the, for the next few hundred years, I think we can all agree that, yes, we, we know how to store nuclear fuel. But when we're talking, we're talking about hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of years, you know, make, make the case. And so this technology, which not just decades old, but, you know, billions of years old, if you're looking at how nature has been doing it, uh, if, is the, the best thing to do for storing the nuclear waste. There are other things you can do in terms of generating more energy from the waste in advanced reactors. That's another conversation. And, yep. and that always has been an alternative to to storage, but there are various uh, economic reasons, polit political reasons um, for not going down that road. Um, yeah, and it, I always I always find the decades of research to me reassuring. So I'm like, they've looked at this a lot. It's not it's not something they came up with last year and decided, hey, let's just go and do this. It's well researched with underground labs around the world running yeah. experiments on these concepts. And I know here in South Bruce, we hear all the time that it's an unproven experiment, which drives me nuts when people say that, because we know how to do all the things that are required. We know how to shield, yes. we know how to create containers, we know how to essentially mine the tunnels, we know how to do all of those things. That's putting it all together to make it one safe project, which is right. a, a huge environmental project in my mind. It's huge for environmental protection long term. It's not so it's not an unproven experiment. All those things have been proven individually. We're putting it right. all together. But I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of science out there, which which is at, at, at the root of this. So pe people don't tend to trust scientists. Um, the last couple of years have, have really soured a lot of people on, on mm -hmm. science when they've seen um, science in action. And what surprises people, especially in the last couple of years, is that is that science tries to find the the answers and doesn't and it doesn't know all the answers. P people are used to scientists uh, sort of acting egotistically, like Sheldon on Big Bang, and and they're like these smart eggheads that just seem to know the answer to everything. Yeah. You ask them a question, they answer immediately, and they answer it in a in a with an attitude because they 
because yeah. they, they don't, you know, because they know when you don't sort of thing. That is not science. Science is exactly the opposite. It's saying, I don't know, but I here's a way that I can find out objectively what the answer is. And I think people don't understand that for starters. Secondly, a lot of people, uh, the first time they've heard about this proposal to build a DGR is 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 when the, the, the towns were approached and signed up to learn more and be on the list as, for consideration. And so if you don't dig any further than that, you think, well, this just came up in the last couple of years. This organization called the NWMO somehow got a hold of this nuclear waste and, and, and a crazy idea to put it in, in, in the ground. And they don't realize that it's built on not just uh, 50 years of research in Canada, but around that same time of research internationally, mm-hmm. um, in, including in countries where in a couple of years, they are going to be putting spent fuel in exactly one of these things, yeah. Uh, yeah. so Finland and, and Sweden. Um, and, and so the, the level of science is pretty solid on this to the point where the where the uncertainty has been reduced down, the uncertainty about what's going to happen to this waste over the period of time that we are we're looking at is down to a, an extremely low level. It's, it's, it's an acceptable level, but but to prove to, to prove that to people or show it to people yeah. is, is very difficult because then then you're talking about uncertainties and scientific outcomes and people just well, want to know, well, what's safe and what's not. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what's complicated that too is with COVID the last couple of years, like you said, people are seeing that early scientific period in real time. And it was so quickly changing when we knew we went from knowing nothing about COVID to having a vaccine in a year. And, you know, people were like, what's all the, and you know, the number of vaccines we got changed a little bit. And, you know, the information changed so quickly that people started to mistrust it. And it's not that it's not trustworthy it's just that you watched all of the early research and things pile in and people's opinions changed as they learned more and you know the consensus grew and much like all science there's a few outliers who are scientists but do you take the consensus opinion or do you bank your money on the few outliers and exactly and it does it does get complicated and i think covid has really opened that up for people and made science much more complicated. Well, science is always complicated, but it's made people really mistrust science because they've seen that early yes. craziness of, of unknowns right. happening in real time where normally scientists don't come out with their recommendations until they are pretty sure where with COVID they were forced to make decisions early. They still made the safe decisions because the point where the recommendations were made was was the point where this the science was showing with a pretty good certainty that pretty acceptable certainty that it was going to be safe but the the fine details like how many boosters and and with what frequency and uh, sort of thing it was impossible to know that at the at the outset so things were changing and people don't like seeing change because again they're used to sheldon just you know but he's got an attitude but by gosh he seems to know that he seems to have the answer sort of thing And so no, you hear I these think. things like, like Fauci got it wrong, Fauci got it wrong, but well, Fauci's a scientist, of course he got it wrong, yeah. but it was, was anybody put at harm? No, they were safe to begin with, and they just got increasingly more and more safe as the, as the uh, in- information became clearer. Yeah, science is, uh, science is one of those things. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's tricky. I know I got that from the International Conference of Geological Repositories. The thing that stuck with me is uncertainty does not mean it's not safe. The two don't go together. Right. Uncertainty is not unsafe. And I'm like, oh, actually, I really like that. So that's kind of where my brain's at right now is that uncertainty is okay. And we should really look at what the uncertainty is and risk assessment, and all that. 
anyway, I won't keep you any longer because <laughs> I promised you a certain set amount of time. Um, <laughs> but I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this today. It's been great. This is this has been enjoyable, Sheila. I really appreciate the chance to chat on this topic. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.